Your hands were made for greatness. Mighty hands for painting, paneling, and clicking the submit order button on homedepot.com to get that duvet. And these Egyptian cotton towels delivered right to your door. Do more with decor at the Home Depot. Save up to 30% on select bedding and bath. Now at homedepot.com. More saving, more kinds of doing. Ballot on select items online only. Free delivery on select items $45 or more. Enter promo code BEDBATH15 at purchase for an extra 15% off. Visit homedepot.com for more information. Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today, we're going to be talking about parenting children who have been exposed to trauma. An important topic, an interesting topic, and uh, we're talking with the author of a book I really, really liked, No Such Thing as a Bad Kid. Uh, I think you're going to thoroughly enjoy this show. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. The behavior is a symptom. And you can give them timeouts, you can give them consequences, you can have them try and do it again, you can practice a desired behavior, but really what you want to get is, where's this coming from? Where's this coming from? And sometimes it's deeply psychological, you know, and what we're also learning now, what we've known for a lot of years, is a lot of times the behavior comes from a negative mindset. Kids really don't like themselves, they feel bad about themselves, they harbor terrible self-perceptions. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Infertility Education and Support Nonprofit, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We have one of the things we do is create online courses. We have an adopted Adopt Ed Center for Parents, hundred some odd courses uh, that parents can take either uh, pre-service if they're foster parents or in service or for pre-adoption or post-adoption. We have lots of courses on uh, parenting kids exposed to trauma, covering different aspects of it. Uh, You can find our online center, uh, Adopt Ed for Parents, by going to our website, creatingafamily.org, hover over the word online education, and click on for parents. If you're a social worker, uh, you can click on social worker, and we have... I believe, a dozen courses that have CE approval uh, for, um, and some that touch on and uh, tangentially touch on parenting kids or helping parents who are parenting kids exposed to trauma. So you can find all that at our website, creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family show is underwritten by Jockey Being Family Foundation. Their mission is to strengthen adoptive families through post-adoption services. As their founder, Deborah Waller, says, one failed adoption is one too many. You can support their mission by buying a bear or a blanket, both are cute and cuddly, at their website, jockeybeingfamily.com. And we thank them for their support of both this show and our mission. Uh, Let's see. Uh, we also have other uh, supporters, other partners, whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. Some of our wonderful supporters include Holt International. They were founded in 1956, and they lead the global community in finding families for children who need them, and, most important, providing the pre- and post-adoption support that those families need to thrive. We also have MLJ Adoptions. They are a nonprofit 
Hague Accredited Adoption Agency serving families across the United States who are interested in growing their family through international adoption. They also offer home study services to residents of Indiana. <coughs> Excuse me, guys. I am battling a bit of a cold today, uh, so you're just going to have to <laughs> work with me and and, uh, and work around my uh, occasional cough. I'll try to use the cough button whenever I can. Uh, in addition to the partners I just mentioned, we have other partners uh, who support us and our mission. We ask that when choosing an adoption service provider, please consider, consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on our site. You can search by just a host of factors that we think are important when choosing. And by using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Today's topic is parenting children who have been exposed to trauma. Our, our expert to talk today is Charlie Appelstein. He is a Master's of Social Work. He is the president of Appelstein Training Resources. He is also the author of No Such Thing as a Bad Kid. It's, a, it's the revised edition. Understanding and Responding to Kids with Emotional and Behavioral Challenges Using a Positive Strength-based approach. Uh, the original book has been out for uh, a while, and then the uh, uh, it has now a revised edition uh, and uh, an excellent resource. Uh, uh, Charlie has had over 40 years' experience working with at-risk kids in a host of, of different facilities: residential facilities, schools, both public and private, as well as foster care. Welcome, Charlie, to Creating a Family. Thank you very much. Great to be here, Don. I uh, have read the book. I love the book. I uh, uh, I find it to be a an excellent resource and a really good summary of of working with children as the um, as you as the subtitle says, understanding and responding to kids with emotional and behavioral challenges. Um, one of the things that uh, that you say uh, in the book is behaviors, even or maybe even especially challenging behaviors, are an attempt to relay a message. Um, and that our natural tendency is to focus on what the child did rather than why they did it. Can you talk a little more about that? I mean, what do you mean by if, if a kid is really acting out, what message are they sending us other than readiness? Oh, it's really, done. one of my favorite things to talk about. I one of my favorite things lately I, I say in my trainings is no kid likes acting out. That the biggest crock in the world is that kids like acting out. You know, I say to people, um, if you could put true sermon to any troubled kid and say, who would you rather be? You, the kid who's acting out, being belligerent, rude, defiant, cutting herself, running away, bullying, or that kid over there who has a lot of friends, great family life, and a wonderful future ahead of her. Who would you rather be? There is no troubled kid in the world that would even come close to picking him or herself. They're acting out to send a message, I need help. Uh, for example, I do a lot of consultation in the schools. A lot of kids act out in, in the classroom. Uh, why are they acting out? I would be rich beyond belief if I had a nickel for every time I got referred to an acting out kid in a classroom setting uh, that we found out he had a, a hidden learning disability. He had Asperger's syndrome. He uh, wasn't eating breakfast in the morning. She was being beaten at home. Uh, they don't like acting out. They want to do well, but they're sending a message. Help me out here. Something's wrong. 
I can't figure this out. I'm hungry. Um, I can't sit still. Uh, You know, something's going on psychologically, neurologically, maybe physically. Please figure this out and help me out. No kid likes acting out. Behavior is always a message. Help me out. Figure out what's going on here. That doesn't mean you don't respond to it, but you always understand behavior is a message. It's like a neon light flashing over a kid's head. Help me here. Help me. And, and, and again, you're not saying that, that, we, that you don't address the behavior, but you use an analogy that I thought was particularly apt, and that is, uh, well, I'll let you tell it. It's, 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 you address the behavioral problem first. You don't just discipline. And the analogy you, you use is about the, the treating a torn cartilage. An athlete has torn their cartilage, and, and the, you don't just give painkillers. So talk about it. Use that analogy. Explain that analogy. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite simple. Uh, you know, the, the behavior is a symptom of a problem. The problem is it could be nur- lack of nurturing, it could be abuse, it could be neurological, psychological. So the behavior is always a symptom of a problem. So if you have a bad knee, you've got to fix it up. You, could, you, you know, you could take painkillers and stuff to relieve the pain. But if it's a torn cartilage, you've got to do the surgery. You've got to do really get involved. Uh, well, same with kids. You know, their behavior is a symptom. And you can give them timeouts, you can give them consequences, you can have them try and do it again, you can practice a desired behavior, but really what you want to get is, where's this coming from? Where's this coming from? And sometimes it's deeply psychological, you know, and what we're also learning now, what we've known for a lot of years, is a lot of times the behavior comes from a negative mindset. Kids really don't like themselves, they feel bad about themselves, they harbor terrible self-perceptions. And uh, there's more and more evidence coming out now every day that says how you behave in life is often a reflection of how you perceive yourself. So part of my book mm-hmm. and part of my approach, which many people use, is changing mindsets, getting kids to feel better about themselves, uh, changing the negative circle. thoughts that they have. We'll come back to that because I, I liked that uh, section as well. What I particularly liked was the concrete examples of things you can yeah. do. Let's start, though, now talking about trauma. That tends to be a buzzword right now, in the, uh, but, but perhaps for good reason. Uh, and trauma, first of all, let's, let's define what trauma is. I think oftentimes people assume that trauma is simply extreme physical abuse. Uh, what is trauma, and then how does it affect the child's brain, and does it depend on how old the child is when they experience the trauma and, and how severe and, and how prolonged and all that stuff? Well, again, uh, trauma, there are many definitions, but really trauma, you know, uh, current definition would talk to the fact that trauma can be sexual, physical, or emotional abuse, and that uh, uh, to any degree, uh, and that at any age, trauma will, can have long-term effects on kids, and whether they're two or whether they're 15, and that uh, uh, trauma has a very definitive effect on the brain. Uh, it... Uh, Basically, it stops the brain from advancing. In other words, when kids suffer trauma, uh, they tend to overuse the lower part of their brain, which one expert called the survival brain, which is all about self-protection. And that basically kids who suffer trauma, they will list, kind of reside in that lower part of the brain, uh, always worried about future trauma, always worried about what's going to happen next, always worried about suffering pain and humiliation and fear, uh, they become all consumed with uh, 
getting through every day based on the trauma that they've experienced. And when they're all consumed with protection, uh, they're not accessing higher parts of the brain, which one guy called the logical brain, the emotional brain, which is all about advanced processing, problem-solving, perspective, empathy. That basically when you've suffered trauma, you kind of retreat. You use part of the brain that's all about self-protection, and it stops you from accessing higher parts of the brain. So literally, trauma pretty much stops a kid from moving forward, uh, you know, from an uh, intellectual standpoint, and it's, it's devastating. Most people in prison probably are overutilizing the lower part of the brain or are still down there because they've suffered so much trauma in their life. Uh, they didn't access the higher parts of the brain to lead more productive lives. So if you are a foster parent or an, an adoptive parent, especially if you've adopted a child who was past infancy, um, when when you came into and then came into your life, when you came into their life, or if you're a social worker working with families, foster families or adoptive families, how can we take we we can assume that most of our children have experienced trauma, and that's especially the case if our kids are acting out. How can we use the knowledge that yes, our kid has had trauma, but on the other hand, our kid's still acting out. How can we use the knowledge that the kid has experienced trauma to help us help the kid with her behaviors? Well, that's really the genesis of my book and the whole strength-based approach because kids have suffered trauma. They're fearful of the world. They have negative self-perceptions. Uh, they won't even try new things because they're afraid of failing, uh, of being humiliated. Uh, and so using a positive strength-based approach gets kids to expand beyond that. You know, what I really like in the new book is this metaphor I use of the elephant herd. I said, mm -hmm. you really want to understand trauma, you go to Africa. I went on safari many years ago. Uh, every now and then when you approach a herd of elephants, many of the herds will get into this tight circle and they will put the little children in the middle and they will die in that circle protecting the young. Those elephants, and in my trainings, I show the woods behind, the jungle behind them. I said, these elephants won't take the path behind them to get to uh, the water hole they need for hydration. They won't find the path to the right that will take them to a more lush region of the jungle that they will have a better food supply. No, they're going to die in that circle protecting the young. That's the, hum that's the human brain, and that's the survival brain. That's where so many kids who suffer trauma are at. They're overusing that lower part of the brain, and they're not accessing the higher parts of the brain. And I say the pathways to the waterhole, in, in biology we call those neural connections or synapses. A kid who suffered trauma isn't using those pathways. Uh, new ones aren't being created, but they're just down below. They're so afraid. Um, but the good news is, and this is the really good news, is as we continued on safari, every now and then we come across a herd of elephants that would not get into the circle when they saw humans. They would continue, into venture, continue to venture into the higher regions of the jungle, use the full expanse of the jungle to lead happy, productive lives. And I, then I will ask the participants, why is that? Why is that? And some people say because they're not afraid uh, of humans. They've had good experiences. I said, absolutely. Those elephants would see us and go, hey, guys, humans are back. Hey, Dumbo, you can get your backwash, brother. Hey, this is great, humans. And then I tell people, literally, everything I'm going to tell you today, everything in my book is about this circle, whether you're dealing with trauma kids or not. You want to create such positive relationships. Uh, you want to create such wonderful atmospheres that are safe, inspiring, energizing, 
that every single kid who suffered trauma wakes up every day going, this is the greatest place I've ever been. This is the greatest family I've ever had. I don't have to be afraid of failing. I don't have to be afraid of getting hurt here. And when you create positive, strength-based environments like that, kids start accessing higher parts of the brain. They start being all they can be. And that really is the genesis of the whole approach. It's really saying that every single kid has amazing potential, even kids who suffer terrible trauma. But they're only going to maximize that potential if the adults are doing the right thing, if they're positive, if they're using the right approaches, the right verbal interventions. Uh, they are setting up environments where kids succeed, where you focus on what kids do right versus what they do wrong. And literally the 500 pages of my new book, it's all really about that. It's about responding to kids in ways that will have them access the higher parts of the brain, take chances, create neural pathways. And it's, it's really exciting stuff because what the new book has, what the old book didn't have, is, is that, the rationale for why this makes such perfect sense. So let's talk about some specific ways, and you're right, um, um, in addition, we can only touch the surface, but let's sure. talk about some specific ways that parents, be they foster parents or adoptive parents, um, can create, uh, work from a strength-based approach, create the, the positive uh, inspiring environment that will help children who've experienced trauma move up into the higher levels of their brain and not continually function out of a place of fear. Sure. And where that all starts, where I start all my workshops, and I really start the book as I tell people, strength-based practice is really about two words, attitude and actions. It starts with the attitude you convey to every kid from the second he or she walks into your life and then forever that says, I believe in you. I think you're one amazing kid. You're going to make it with me. You're going to make it in life, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be part of your journey. Now let's get going. Then everything an adoptive parent or anyone, a teacher, anyone does with that kid from there on in has to be an extension of that attitude that says, I believe in you. I think you're one great kid. You're going to make it with me. You're going to make it in life. Let's go. Then everything you do, uh, every action there has to back that up. And when you do that, it builds great relationships and gets kids to use the higher parts of the brain. And, uh, you know, that's why I tell, you know, adoptive parents, they'll teachers, part of being a great parent, part of being a great teacher, you've got to be a great actor. You know, uh, you know, this job, oftentimes, you know, when you wake these kids up in the morning, when you see them after school, when you greet them, if you're a teacher, when you're greeting kids, you've got to look like there's nowhere else in the world you'd rather be than seeing that kid that day. Because that sends a message to every kid. When you greet a kid with a big smile in the morning, when you're a teacher and you greet a kid, uh, with a really positive way, which you should do every single time, uh, it sends a message to the kids that there's someone out there that can't wait to see me. Uh, there's someone out there that believes in me, that looks forward to me. You know, and so uh, If yeah. you're a foster parent or, uh, or, uh, or at the first meeting as an adoptive parent or as a foster parent when the child is first brought to you, um, yeah. what language, specifically what language would you use um, with that child to help convey the attitude that, as you say, is the underpinning of the of the safe environment that you're going to be creating. Well, it's interesting. Every time I meet a kid for the first time and I tell parents this, I always tell them the same thing. Look, you got to know something about me. I believe there's no such thing as a bad kid or bad parent, just bad luck, bad choices, that all kids are amazing, and that with the right guidance and support, I and others were going to help you be all you can be. You know, but some of these kids come in thinking that they're bad kids. Um, and then you, you know, uh, early on you need to focus on what the kid does right, pull, pick up their strengths. 
you know, early on when I meet kids, I play a lot of games with them. I lose on purpose 99% of the time, get really mad. You know, I, I early on try to put the kid in a position to succeed. Uh, or And or I look at, explore with the kid what they're good at, what their strengths are, what their hobbies, what their talents. Strength-based practice is all about focusing on what people do right. So early on, I try to get across that I believe every kid's a great kid, that there is no such thing as a bad kid, that I'm really excited to be working with you. I feel very lucky to be working with you, um, and that I know we're going to do great things together and that you're going to do great things. You know. Also, early on, I, I, I try to talk to kids about their future. More and more experts are coming out every day that says uh, for kids to make it in life, they have to articulate a positive future for themselves. See, this is why I like the elephant circle. What we know now is that a lot of the kids who suffer trauma who are just using that lower part of their brain, they literally can't see their future. Think about a barrier around the elephants. You know, They can't see what's out there. They can't see that they can have a knife because they're so consumed with the here and now. So what, we're, what we learned, have learned over the last years is that for these kids to make it, you've got to constantly talk about the future. For instance, I have a technique in the new book called Positive Predicting. And I use this early on when I meet a kid. So I might tell a kid, you've got to know something about me. I believe there's no such thing as a bad kid, bad parent. I tell every kid, I think every kid is like a train, a big, powerful train, but all trains get off track. You might have been a little off track. We're going to get you back on track. You're going to go somewhere great. And then I do positive predicting. I say, and how should we celebrate in six weeks when you've had the best six weeks you ever had? Or, uh, or, or I talk to them, what are you going to be when you grow up? And we really start talking about that. Uh, and it's really quite powerful. Uh, kids, you know, sometimes will, will tell a teacher, I never even thought I had a future. You know, I didn't even think I could do that. And it just starts to open up pathways in the brain when you start talking to kids about the future. So those are three things that I like to do right away. I like to say no such thing as a bad kid. I like to talk about the train metaphor. And I like to talk about their future. And right away, that is instilling hope and possibility in these kids. And that's something that that parents can utilize as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. They the, should be, very, they should the be very, very future-oriented. Always talk about the future like it's going to happen. Uh, use a lot of one. There are a lot of wonderful metaphors that help kids feel better about themselves, like the train metaphor. You know, instead of mm-hmm. saying to kids, "You're being rude. You're being mean. You're being this," you know, "Hey guys, we're really off track today. We got wheels spinning, oil sipping on the ground. I'm not sure we're going the playground until we get this train back on track." That's so much nicer mm-hmm. than you're being rude, you're being mean, you're being this. Mm-hmm. You know, what you have to get across early on is that you really love kids. Uh, you believe in them. You look forward to seeing kids every day. Uh, that we all make mistakes, you know. And if you make a mistake, that you'll be you'll, you'll be accountable, but in a, you know, in a very common sense way. But that what we really focus on in this house is what you do right. Now we love kids here, and then you got to back that up with your attitude. You know, uh, I, I tell I have orientation material that's used in residential programs, foster care agency schools all over the world. It says when you start with these. Every time you walk into a situation with a kid, you look like you want to be there. You know, if you're in a bad mood, you fake it. You know, now for foster parents and adoptive parents, they say, you can't be up 24-7. I'm not being unrealistic here. But there are strategic times during the day when you're a foster or adoptive parent. You've got to turn it on. I think that's important. When you, when that kid comes home back from, from, comes home from school, when you wake him up in the morning, when you say go to bed tonight, you've got to say to yourself, no matter how tired you are, 
turn it on for that kid because it sends a message to that kid that there's someone out there that really believes in me. That's really about building relationship. And, and so much of my book, I really think, is about building this incredibly inspiring relationship with a kid. You know, there's a guy named James Gavarino, who's one of the world's foremost experts on kids and violence. He, I, I saw him speak in Las Vegas. He got in front of a group of 1,000 people and said, we can now predict with almost 100% certainty whether a tough teenager with a history of aggression will commit another act of aggression when he enters the high school in the fall. He says, if we can look into this kid's life at any moment while they're at the school and see this one factor present, we don't worry about the kid. And the answer is, if the kid can wake up knowing there's at least one adult at the school who thinks I'm terrific, the odds of that kid doing something serious go down about zero. And I tell every foster parent, every adoptive parent, every teacher, every parent, you've got to make sure every single kid in your house that you guide wakes up every day thinking you think that kid is terrific. And, that, and, and so everything we talk about is all about that. Because when you, these kids go to bed knowing that there's someone in the next room who thinks I'm terrific, it literally opens up pathways in the brain. It literally gets kids thinking about their future. It literally activates the strengths that these kids have and cultivates new ones. It's really all about that tremendous attitude. And the evidence is just overwhelmingly supportive of this. We have a question from one of our audience, Bethany. She says, my foster daughter is 13 and has been with us for 14 months. I care for this child a lot, but she pushes all my buttons. When she flat out lies to me or sneaks out at night, I just lose it. I'm at my wit's end. Any thoughts to share with Bethany um, to, to work with her daughter, who, as she says, pushes all of her buttons? Well, again, it's, it's hard sometimes when you don't know the history, but one of my favorite techniques that we talk about throughout the book is reframing. It's where you take a negative behavior and you turn it positive. And there's oftentimes when kids and adults are at loggerheads, there's this distance, and it's taking away from the relationship. And so a reframing, it's all about taking a negative behavior and seeing the protective value. You know, uh, so for a kid, for instance, I've worked with many kids who are obnoxious. Sometimes adolescent girls are very obnoxious with men because they've been sexually abused by men. And so by being obnoxious, they push men away. So sometimes I will say to a teenage girl, you know, when you do this, this, and this, which some people say you're choosing to be obnoxious, what I see you're doing is pushing me away, pushing men away. Because you know what? Getting close to men maybe hasn't been so much fun for you. Um, but the problem is you're a great kid and I'm a great parent or a great staff. If you keep pushing that way, we never get to know how great you are and you never get to see that some men can be trusted. So with this girl or any girl, I would try to look at the underlying protective value of the behavior. So she wants to sneak out at night. So, okay, hey, you want more freedom. You're 13. You're separating. You're becoming a young person. That's good. I, would, I want you to get out there and experience life. I don't want you to stay in all day. But there are right ways to do this and right ways not to do that. You know, and if she's pushing her buttons, you know, say it's rudeness or uh, obnoxiousness or something, you know, uh, there could be many ways to reframe that. You know, sometimes if a kid's provocative, I'll say to a kid, you know, when you do this and this behavior, you're doing a really good job of getting me angry. But I think what you're really doing is letting me understand how angry you are. Uh, and, and that's good. I want to know how angry you are. I want to know where you're coming from. But maybe you can use your words in a better way. You know, uh, I had a kid who was really rude at my residential program. Very rude kid. Terribly neglected kid. He comes home from high school one day and he says, um, "Guess what, Charlie?" I said, "What, Jay?" He said, "The secretary at Nashua High told me today I'm the first kid in 30 years to get under her skin." 
I said, Jay, that's fantastic. I said, think about that. For 30 years, kids have been booted out of class. They go down to the office. They provoke this little woman. And you, you're the only one in 30 years to get under her skin. I said, what an amazing ability you have to affect people. I said, the problem is this great talent of yours is getting you in trouble, hurting people's feelings. Uh, we got to think of a way for you to use this skill that will help the world, help people. So we discussed it for a while. We figured out he'd be a great talk show host like you. He said, uh, p- people have to tune you on, you know. Uh, well, you know. He starts feeling better about himself, knowing he shouldn't be rude at school, but that he has the ability to affect people. It's not an accident that a few weeks later, during a quiet period, I'm able to connect the fact that maybe his great ability to affect people had something to do with being so neglected as a kid. So with this girl, remember, we start with the premise that every kid is a good kid. 13 years old is a really tough year. They're separating. They're individuating. It's the second phase of separation. They're trying to figure out who am I, where am I going, what's my peer group. It's in a tremendously, their body is changing. It's a tremendously difficult time of life for a kid. So if I'm a foster mother, I'm understanding some of the, you know, the anger and the, uh, the behavior she's getting is the kid saying, Mom, this is a really tough time of life. I'm so confused. I'm so angry. Help me out here. You know, that, that's what the message is. You know, and so I would suggest to this mother is to try and reframe some of that. It says, you know, when you do this and this and this, you're sending me a message that you're not really happy and that you need to talk about some of this stuff. And I get it. I get it. This is not an easy time for you. So I would look at, you know, trying to connect with the kid by connecting with the behavior, you know, and and then mm-hmm. moving from there. Because too often we just deal with the behavior. We react instead of respond to the behavior, and that causes mm-hmm. more friction, you know. And then I would look at, you know, what kind of supportive interventions we could do with the kid. Try to channel. If she wants to get out more, let's help her find ways to get out more. And this and that. If she wants to be disrespectful or whatever, say, you know, you're good at expressing yourself. I've had kids who swear like crazy, you know, you're really good at expressing yourself. You got words they never heard before. I'm gonna use some of them at the football game on Sunday, but if you wanna swear, you wanna get mad, do it one on one with me downstairs, not in front of not in a restaurant. Is sometimes we, we, we talk about a three step process with behavior. We understand behavior, reframe it, and then squeeze it into an appropriate place. So these would all be the kind of things I would be trying to do with this girl. Understand she's a good kid. She's going through a rough time. She's got a lot of issues. Try to see the protective value, the underlying value of the behavior. She wants more autonomy. She's upset with her life. She's going through a rough time developmentally. Why don't you try and connect to that? You know, say when you do this, this, and this, you know, some people say you're choosing to be rude or angry or demeaning. I think it's your way of saying, help me out here, Ma. Help me out. I'm going through such a damn tough time. And, you know, I've done that many times, and it, it often gets through. You know, so that, that's, that's the template for that kind of thing. The, the kid's a good kid. She's, she's telling you through her behavior, I'm upset, I'm worried about stuff. Um, help me out here, Ma. Help me out. This interview is brought to you by Creating a Family. We are the national adoption and infertility education and support nonprofit We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our weekly e-newsletter. We have one based on adoption. You can sign up for it on any page that you can uh, on our website, creatingafamily.org. Today we're talking about uh, parenting children who have been exposed to trauma. Our guest is Charlie Appelstein. He is the author of No Such Thing as a Bad Kid, Understanding and Responding to Kids with Emotional and Behavioral Challenges 
using a positive strength-based approach. Charlie, one of the things that I wonder is that, and, and this is the case with Bethany, she's at her wit's end, um, that this is also the case where the, uh, the, uh, the schools that you were referring to where the kid gets under the, uh, the staff's skin um, and pushing the buttons. Why do parents or adults lose it when kids misbehave? Um, I have uh, some ideas, but I'm, I'm curious to know. So what is it that's making us, and in in the jargon that you often use is react versus respond. Um, and uh, we also slip into the lower part of our brain and act first, think second. So why do we do that? I mean, we know it's not something we're supposed it's a, to do. It's a great question, and I, I spend a lot of time talking to people about that. As they say, you know, what good is someone like me if I just give you tools but I don't tell you how to use them? You know, I said, uh, hammer's an easy tool, yet if I have to put an... Uh, a nail in the wall over there. As I walk to the wall, a kid spits in my face. I stub my toe. My beeper goes off, and my wife left me again. Only kidding. I have a good marriage. She hates that joke. I say, if those three things happen <laughs> on the way to the wall, what's the likelihood I'm going to hit the nail in the first hit? Pretty low. I said, so I'm not even going to do a training, and I'm not even going to talk to you about kids unless you give me a little while to talk to you how to use the tools. So your question is great. I think there are two major reasons this why adults and parents react instead of respond to kids say and do things they shouldn't really do, say or do. One, I think you take it personal. I don't believe anybody in the world that says, I don't take it personal. That person's in denial. The day I don't take it personal when a kid acts out, who I'm working with or my daughter, is the day I'm out of this business. This is probably the first day I don't feel good when she's doing great or the kid is doing great. You always take it personal if you're a human being. And the big thing, I could spend an hour on this, but the big thing that occurs when you take it personal is your self-esteem takes a hit. And then you tend to react instead of respond. One of the most important things I think I can tell anybody is this. No one in the world has good self-esteem. If anybody tells me they have good self-esteem, all I have to do is look at them and go, what the hell happened to you? You looked so good last time I saw you. Sheesh, you're a wreck. You'd be devastated. Uh, The bottom line is, I joke about this a little. I think people have pretty good self-esteem. But the reality is self-esteem is fragile in all human beings. Everybody is just one hit away from being devastated. One serious criticism, and you're shot for like days. And that's the reality of life. Self-esteem is fragile in all of us. Uh, and that based on that dynamic, that self-esteem is fragile in all of us, people have to understand that if you take in troubled kids, you work with kids, you're going to suffer multiple hits to your self-esteem every day. Good talk does nothing. Kid is rude to you. Kid runs away. Kid cuts himself. Kid destroys property. I mean, I go on and on. And so what happens when kids act out? We take it personally. We take a hit to our self-esteem. What does it say about me? Uh, it's almost impossible not to do that. And so what, what people do when the kids act out is they take it personally, they take a hit to the self-esteem, and they react instead of respond. What I tell people to do is understand that your self-esteem is fragile, you are going to take it personal, and to use this kind of self-talk. It's an injury, it will heal. It's an injury, it will heal. That every time you're self-esteem takes a hit see it as like a cut on the arm and what's going to happen to a cut it's going to heal in a day in a couple of days it won't be there so i tell people every time i take a hit to my self-esteem and i'm different than anybody i quickly identify what i'm feeling and normalize it okay i'm angry i'm pissed i could kill this kid okay all feelings are okay learn from this behavior is a message charlie learn from this and then i say the most important thing and i'm suffering a bad self-esteem injury and the key term is injury in in, in one hour 
in two days, in ten minutes, I won't remember this. It's an injury, it will heal. Respond instead of react. I have millions of people all over the world saying that every day of their life. It's an injury, it will heal. Respond instead of react. And respond means use the golden rule. It means don't say or do anything to a kid or a group you wouldn't want it done to yourself. We have a horrible double standard in society that says we can say and do things to kids we would never tolerate ourselves. We don't like being yelled at. We don't like being bossed around. We don't like being told without a please or a thank you. We don't like bedrooms, medications, rules, seating assignments, rooms changed without our say. You know, why would a kid? You know, it's an injury. It will heal. Respond instead of react. I literally calibrate every hit, and I have millions of people. If I'm walking down the hallway with a kid and he embarrasses me in front of another teacher, uh, I think, oh, that's going to last five minutes and it's gone. If I'm working in a school, consulting in a school, and a principal calls me in her office and really criticizes something I did, oh, that's going to bother me for three days, and then it's gone. Literally every hit you take is gone. It's an injury. It will heal. Respond instead of react. And uh, like I said, I have millions of people saying that every day. That's the number one. Well, that's not the one. That's a major reason we act out. And uh, that's why I tell people, to be effective with kids, you have to have what we call a strong, observing ego. That's that little voice that talks to you throughout your whole day. You know, normalizing your feelings and then having you do the right thing. It's an injury will heal. Respond instead of react. Respond instead of react. Five minutes from now, I won't feel this way. And uh, I don't, you know, to this day, I mean, I've been in this business 40 years. I go all over the country talking about this stuff. I still take it personally. If I'm working with a kid and he's acting out, I still take it personally. It's an injury. It will heal. Respond instead of react. And then we the other huge reason we screw up, yes. Well, we Say, take it yeah. personally because we it, we think it's a reflection on us as a parent. Exactly. We, what does it say think, about okay, me as a parent, as I a was, teacher, as a consultant? Exactly. exactly. If I was a better parent, you, this kid would not be acting this way. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I tell people, you know, uh, you know, when the phone rings and it's the school and, and your kid's doing something wrong, your first thought isn't, who set my darling up? It's, boy, this makes me look bad as a parent. This makes me yep. look bad. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I pretty I keep my cool pretty good. I've been working with kids for a lot of years, but I mean, I remember I lost my cool with my daughter once. Why? Because she embarrassed me in front of the neighbors, and I'm thinking, they know what I do for a living. This makes me look really bad, and, yeah. I, and I took it really personally, and I yelled at her, and you know, I still apologize to her to this day about that. But we all take it personal. What does this say about me? But the nice thing is, there's a nice response. It's an injury. It will heal. Two minutes from now. An hour from now, I won't remember this. Respond instead of react. Use the golden rule. And in my book, I have like 40 pages on what respond instead of react look like. Like I talk about the affect scale. Think about the scale of justice. I, I tell people, as the kid gets louder, you get quieter. You know. Uh, I also talk about uh, content message. You know, Everything we say in the world has two components of content and message. I could say, you know, Don, you look great today. Or I can say, you know, Don, you look great today. You know, first one, you look great today. Second one, you don't want to see Dawn on non-workshop days, you know, or non-interview days. That's why I yeah. tell people one well, of the most important things you do with kids is please and thank you. Could you, could I please see you in the hallway versus see me in the hallway? Move your stuff to the other table. Could you please move your stuff to the other table? Thanks. You know, these are the tricks of the trade to respond instead of react to keep kids lower. Also, you know, as they get louder, you get like I said, they get quieter. So. Respond instead of react, observing ego, injury will heal. This is one big facet of managing yourself. The other huge reason we screw up, and probably maybe the number one reason we screw up, parents and professionals, is lack of support. Someone once wrote, it's so true, that anybody who works with kids, 
teaches kids, raises kids who doesn't receive enough daily support, meaning breaks, training, praise, encouragement, feedback, is at great risk to be punitive with the kids all day long. And the reality is there are very few parents in this world, very few teachers who get the right amount of support, breaks, training. So that means mm-hmm. almost every parent is at risk to be punitive all day long. And I tell people, let me show you how this works. I say to parents, I say to professionals, three-quarters of the way through a brutal day with your kids, brutal day, what are we all typically leaning towards? A, one more thing, if the sucker does it one more time, I'm grounding, sending, giving, taking, versus B, mm-hmm. boy, the young lad's had a challenging afternoon. What can I do to make sure he goes to bed with a big smile on his face, little doll, and I love him so much? 99 out of 100 people say A, A. Yeah, a. And then I a. ask them, I said, yep. why, why is the answer A? Why are we at such risk and often do react instead of respond near the end of a rough day? I said, does the reason that we act out more towards our kids near the end of a rough day have anything to do with their difficult behavior? Does their behavior affect our behavior? And people go, oh, yeah, yeah. I go, no, no. I said, it has nothing to Their behavior has nothing to do with your behavior. You know, uh, Don, do you have McDonald's around you? Yes. What are those round things, Don? They serve at McDonald's. They're bread on the outside, meat in the middle, little square to ketchup, mustard in the pickle. What do they call them? Hamburger. Correct. Let the record state Don correctly answered hamburger. So, Don, if you walked into your local McDonald's after the show and you saw someone chomping on a burger, you wouldn't like get upset and go, what the heck is this, a freaking burger? You kind of expect that, Don, right? Eight trillion yep, sold? You kind of expect that at McDonald's, correct? Yep. Yet while you're there, you get beeped to rush back to your house. All hell's breaking loose. Kids are acting out like crazy. You go running in. Hey, what are you doing? No, stop it. You, stop it. Hey, no, you are not. I said, people, you know, what are you doing? You know, you're yelling at burgers. I said, what do you expect these kids to do when you stepped out? What do you expect to see in any house in America that has kind of at-risk kids mingling with each other? Or even healthy kids. They're going to act out. Kids act out. That's what they do. Yet when they do the very thing you know they're going to do, what are you doing? Hey! I mean, I tell people you're yelling at burgers. I said, the reason we act out towards these kids as a rough day winds down is not the behavior. That's a burger. There's nothing. When you take in a kid, when you're an adopted parent, you take in a kid with a trauma history, you know they're going to act out. You know if you've got a 13-year-old girl, like we just mentioned, you know she's going to be belligerent. You know she's going to be rude and stuff. Even a healthy kid is. Yet when they do the very thing we know they're going to do, what are you doing? Hey! No, the reason we act out to a great extent, is lack of support. I tell people, say tomorrow you were assigned a built-in assistant, a big PhD, creative, warm, nurturing type person, who did nothing but follow you around all day, giving you training tips, breaks, praise, encouragement, feedback, snacks. I said, what would be the odds are of you making a lot of mistakes with your kids near the end of a rough day? People say, I wouldn't make any mistakes. So I said, okay, so here's $64,000 question. Is it your kid's fault that you don't get enough support every day? And people say, no, yet we take it out on them. We take it on them. You know, I tell people, how many people have said this line to the kids at least once in their life? Hey, it's been a long day. I don't want to hear it anymore. No, not today. Today is not the day to be pushing my butt. I, I, don't go there right now. Not after the day we had. I say, how many people yep. have said that at least once? Oh, me. And everybody raised yep. their hand. You know, you know I said, that this makes me laugh. That, that, that'd be like, uh, I look at one of the staff, you know, I say, that'd be like you saying to the oldest kid in your house, hey, uh, Charlie, will you take over for me, please? Uh, I'm a little tired right now. Okay. Okay, Mom, I'll take over. Hey, you, Billy, bipolar boy, will you hold it together for an hour? Hey, you, Tourette's, no ticks for a while. Mom's tired. Hey, oppositional defiant girls, will you go with the flow? Mom's a little tired. Hey, listen, Mom, will you tell us when you're feeling refreshed and go back to being who we are? I'm tired. Like, that would do anything, you know. I give five strategies, and I use them every day of my life to get parents and professionals to get through a rough day. Yes, what are they? I tell 
here's the first one. Just think about it. You're three quarters of the way through a rough day with your kids or a teacher or whatever. You think to yourself, I'm tired. I'm worn out. I've had some injuries today. I don't feel like being nice. Stop it. I can do anything for three more hours. I can do anything for three more hours. And then I introduced the audacity word. I said, you have the audacity to compare your life to theirs. You know, if you're an adoptive parent, this poor kid's been raped multiple times. This kid has been in five homes. And you're feeling bad for yourself because you're tired? Stop it, Charlie. You could do anything for three more hours. You know, interesting, I did a training for juvenile detention workers recently. And a guy disagreed with me that you should fake being in a good mood, that you should fake being positive. And uh, near the end, when I brought up this self-management stuff and I used the audacity word, he came up to me, teary-eyed, big six-foot-four guy. He says, you got me on the audacity word. How can I compare my life to theirs? I'm going to come in positive. So that's the first thing I do. Think about it. I'm tired and worn out, but I can do anything for two more hours. You know, two, uh, visualize going to bed with a big smile on your face, knowing no matter how tired you are, no matter how much they push your buttons, you did it pretty good. You weren't perfect, but you did it pretty good. And then if you screwed up, you apologized. Apologizing is one of the greatest techniques in the world. If you yell at your kid, you, you make a mistake with a kid, apologize. They love that because many of these kids have never had anybody apologize. And it's great role modeling. So think about going to bed at night. I tell people every time I do a training, every time I'm with my kid, I'm always thinking about later. How am I going to feel later when I play this back in my head? Am I going to feel good that I spent a lot of time with her? Am I going to feel good that I was good to the kids? Or am I going to feel guilty that I, I said the wrong thing or I didn't spend enough time? So think about going to bed at night with a smile. Three, and this is critical, think about tomorrow, next month, next year. I said this job is never about today. It's always about the future. If you intimidate your kids, if you yell at your kids, if you react instead of respond, you might get them to behave the way you want, but then you pay for it tomorrow. And I always want it getting better. I always want the future better. When my daughter was 13, 14, 15 years old, I'm spending as much time as I can with her, even though she's kind of pushing away at that typical age. Because I'm thinking if I can spend a lot of time with her now, when she's 16, 17, and the drugs and alcohol and the boys and all this come up, she'll probably be better off. I'm always thinking about the future. If I can respond instead of react to the end of every day, tomorrow is going to be a little bit better. If I yell at the kids, if I'm punitive, If I don't do it good enough today, I pay for it tomorrow. So it's always pay me now, pay me more later. So no matter how tired, no matter how angry I am, I try to do it good to the end of every day because I want tomorrow. I want next week. I want next year being better. Four, I think about a mass unit, a mobile surgical unit. You know, say Hawkeye and BJ are operating 20 straight hours in one of these mass units, these mobile surgical units. Um, They got nothing left. They're trudging back to the tent to finally get some sleep after 20 hours on their feet, and a helicopter comes over the woods with a wounded guy. He's going to need six hours of surgery to save his leg. Do Hawkeye and Mijay take a look at the guy and say, sorry, man, we're going to have to cut it off. We're tired. No, they wheel the guy in and save his leg, even though they have nothing left. I always tell parents and professionals, you have to be at your best when you're at your worst when you're dealing with tough kids. Anybody can be that good parent or professional at the beginning of the day. But how about when you got a cold and you've been sick, you didn't even sleep the night before, and this kid's having a big behavior problem, and you've got nothing left? That's what separates the great parent from the mediocre from the lousy. Who, when you've got nothing left, can still do it okay? Not perfect, do it okay. I take great pride in myself that I have to be at my best when I'm at my worst. And I'm thinking about that MASH unit when I'm tired, when I don't feel like dealing. Uh, I often thought about that. Then the last thing I think about, which many people use, is the force versus the dark side. You know, it's so clear that lack of support causes people to be punitive. So when I really understood this dynamic, it became clear to me what we're talking about is the force versus the dark side. 
when you parent in an environment where you don't get enough, get enough support, and that's pretty much everybody. It's like Darth Vader is with you every second of the day. And as the day progresses, he's in your ear. Go ahead, yell at that kid. Don't listen to Appelstein. Punish this kid. Be mean. It worked on you. Do this. You know, it's like he's sucking you to the dark side. You know, everybody relates to that. You know, as a rough day winds down, you're, 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 you know, you're, you're almost, you're almost wishing the kid acts out so you can nail the kid. It's like Darth Vader is sucking you to the dark side. You know, so what do you got to do? I tell parents and professionals: the second you feel that impulse to react instead of respond, say or do something you shouldn't do, you got to hear that little voice from Obi Wan going, "No, Luke, use the Force. Stretch out your feet. No, you can yell now and then, Luke." You know, I got parents and professionals all over the world. They have Star Wars stuff everywhere. You know, in <laughs> fact, I lost a lot of money last year because when I do my trainings, I tell professionals, I say, if you go back to your school or agency tomorrow and you go into the office where you have the mailboxes and you cross out every first name and put Luke, 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 uh, and you take a picture and send it to me, I'll send you ten bucks. I paid out like eight hundred dollars last year. I have yeah. like almost over a hundred pictures now of offices all over the world. That are all disluked. As I said, you're you're a Jedi when you rate when your adoptive parent is a Jedi. You're literally saving a generation. It's one of the greatest things anybody in the world could do is adopt a kid with a trauma history. Because they are tough kids, but they're all great kids. And you know, they're my heroes. And foster parents and adoptive foster parents, parents they're well. my heroes. Yeah. yeah. They're they're Jedi's. They're Jedi's. Jedi save lives, yet they're also grossly outnumbered. So I, I, I often hear this voice. Every time I want to yell at a kid, I hear this voice, Luke. Luke, use the force, Luke. No, I can yell now and then, Luke! And it keeps me going. Those five things have helped so many people. Um, and and, you know, uh, and they would, really work. I would, throw, I would throw one extra one in there, which you probably sure. do as well. And that is figure out a way at least a couple of times a week to do some type of self-care, something that brings oh, you oh, joy. Oh. Yeah, whether it's... Uh, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah. in actuality... Those are the five things I think right away. That's kind of like the more immediate thing I'm thinking in my head. But you could not Mm -hmm. be more correct. I have something in my book called the Echo Map, the Ecological Map. And I point out that lack of support causes people to be punitive. And that if you're not getting enough support as an adoptive parent, a foster parent, uh, you're more, you know, systemically, you're more at risk to be punitive with your kids. And so the Echo Map is like, it's all these circles. And you're in the middle, and then you're surrounded by these other circles. And one says recreation, one says family, one says church, one says um, um, health, one says kids, one says education, one says pets. I basically look at all your support networks, and then I have foster and adoptive parents rate each circle from positive three to minus three. Positive three, this is bringing me a lot of support. Minus three is seriously draining. So, for instance, say you're an adoptive parent, uh, and you're not exercising much. You're not doing much for recreation. Because between your job and the kids, you're not getting out. That could be a minus one. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, uh, and so basically you need to look at every circle and say, how can I raise numbers? How can I? Neighbors. Maybe you get the neighbors helping you out a little more. Maybe that's a minus two right now. You can put it mm-hmm. to a positive one. I said, every number you can raise on your ecological map increases the odds that you're going to be a better parent. You can't make it in life without support. Support is the name of the game. You know, and... uh in fact, people ask me all the time, they say, why do we have so many troubled kids in our society? Why are there so many troubled families? I say, answer these two questions, and you'll see my take on this. Uh, one, how many of you know the neighbors on your street where you live right now the same way you knew your neighbors when you were a little kid? I would say one in 25 hands go up. 
How many of you see your extended family, aunts, nephews, nieces, uncles, aunts, cousins, same way now as you did when you were a little kid, one in 25 go up? I said, that's why our society is so screwed up right now. We, we, ha- we don't have the connections. You know, I said, 50 years ago, you could be a single mother raising four kids on your own, working in a factory 50 hours a week, and you raise four happy kids. Why? And people say, because you knew your neighbors. You had relatives. You had yeah, local stores. Yeah. Now yeah, no one knows anybody. Network. Yeah, you have you know, and, I said, and I say, don't talk to me about Facebook. Facebook's not coming over your house. You have an emergency. Ten people mm-hmm. will comment on it. Two will like it. <laughs> but mm-hmm. yeah. Facebook's not coming over your house. You've got to build connections if you're a parent. Let me read this question from Erica because it, it raises a, a, a topic that I want to, to, to move into. She says, uh, my three-year-old daughter, who was adopted at nine months, has a few behaviors that are really hard for me to cope with. Right now, it's getting into her closet and emptying it. I've tried three locks. Nothing works. And she also tries to knock down the art on her bedroom walls. These are hung extra high, but she somehow reaches them. She is supposed to be taking a nap. She seems not to mind or avoid negative attention. I'm the kind of person who avoids doing things that will get me in trouble. The hi- I'm the hyper-moral person, the people-pleaser. She is also very curious and wants to see the why and the how of everything. How do I support and encourage her personal strengths while teaching her to respect and trust my authority? Help. Well, again, you know, a three-year-old is, even the healthiest of three-year-olds are going to touch things, get into things. Because, you know, to be a good parent, you really have to have a good sense of developmental psychology. And, you know, the two, three-year-olds, they're at that stage, what we call separation individuation, where their world is opening up, they're experiencing, they're walking, they're talking. It's this incredible overload, and it's exciting, it's scary, and you're starting to hear the word no, and it's just, that's where the terrible twos all come from. But they're like in love with the world. They want to explore. They want to touch things. You know, I tell people, if you go into a restaurant, you see a three-year-old sitting quietly, he's on drugs. You know, you know, so... You throw in the adoptive stuff or maybe the lack of uh, stimulation and stuff, it, it makes perfect sense why a girl like that, you know, might want to touch things and explore and so forth. And so, again, I don't really know the girl, but with three-year-olds, a lot of times what you want to do is practice the desired behavior, not get so mad. Understand, you've got to like, kind of stretch your comfort zone a little bit around the three-year-old. Accept a little more behavior than, 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 than you might at an older age because they're really just opening up now. The the world is opening up. They're exploring. They're touching. So see if you could take some of those behaviors and have her practice them, like touch things, other things she can touch. Give her choices. What do three-year-olds need? Choices. So you might say, you know, if you, if you just, if this picture up here might get, might hurt you if you pull it down, but why don't you pick one of these two other things? So try to have substitute things that she could do. Take the behaviors that she's doing that you don't like and kind of see if you can channel them into something similar that is acceptable, where she has a choice. So if she's ripping things from the closet, maybe she rips something from somewhere else or something like that. Mm-hmm. So try to take, you know, understand that this is curiosity. This is also going to be testing of you, but it's more curiosity. It's more of a developmentally appropriate thing. And see if you can channel it. Again, I love practicing the desired behavior with three-year-olds. You know, so uh, if you can look at any of the misbehaviors that she does and see if you can practice the desired behavior and really have fun with it. You know, my daughter wouldn't get out of the bathtub when she was three years old, driving my wife crazy. I took up one day, left, let her in for an hour, and then I said, all right, Julie, you need to get out. She said, no, Dad, I want more time. 
And I know she's going to say that. And you can't put the stopper up. She thinks she's going down the drain. So I said, okay, I'll give you five more minutes, but what are you going to say when the time's up? And then I told her, thanks, Dad, for the extra five, you swell. What are you going to say? Thanks, Dad, for the extra five, you swell. I made her say it like 50 times in the next, you know, five minutes. Then three, two, one, what do you say? Thanks, Dad, for the extra five, you swell. Out she got, never had another problem with her. So what I mm-hmm. did was I, I compromised a little. I gave her a little more time, which made her feel good. Um, then we practiced the desired behavior over and over again. And so that with a three-year-old, uh, you have to accept that they're touching, they're curious, they're not going to listen that great. Uh, see if you can practice the desired behavior. Put in choices that empowers the three-year-old because, again, they're becoming their own little person. They, they're, not, they're, they're venturing into the world. They want to have some power. So this empower them place. by giving them choices. Right, and this might be a good place to use uh, a technique, some of the techniques that you talk about in preventing challenging behavior. She's wanting to get in, and her her mom said elsewhere that she's getting in. She wants to empty the closet. She wants to swing, climb on the the shelf. She wants to swing on the bar. Um, so, how can she? Perfect. Yes. Permit? Perfectly three year old stuff. So see if she can do that same kind of stuff in a more appropriate place. Mm-hmm. But really, re- this is what I talk about reframing. Wow, you're a great climber. Wow, you're really curious about things. That's fantastic. As opposed to just zapping her. You know, reframe the behavior. This is good stuff. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you did that, you might get hurt. How about you pick one of these two things to climb on or pick this to grab? You know, that would be the kind of thing I would be doing with a three-year-old. Reframing, being positive, and then channeling with choices into a thing she could do. And the um, I also thought this question opened up the, the concept of a mismatch in temperament between parent and child. And Certainly, some forms, some temperaments are genetically related. Some are not. It's, uh, we've got a lot of resources on um, the heritability of, of various traits here uh, at Creating a Family. But certainly, some basic temperaments are genetically connected. And as a result, perhaps both foster and, and adoptive parents are more at risk for being uh, mismatched in temperament with their child. And I wonder... How much of that is at play? A mom who is a, a rule follower, a people pleaser, uh, with a, a daughter who is more venturesome and curious, and and has and is not as um, uh, not as restrained in in her actions. Also, of course, the age of three, we wouldn't expect as much. So let's talk a little about mismatched temperament and um, how that plays into uh, our ability to respond versus react to our children. It's it's a great topic. You know, in fact, there's a lady in California, Nancy Davis, who wrote a great book called "Love the Kid You Got, Not the One You Wanted." You know, and I, I sometimes in my parent trainings, they say, you know, part of being a parent is is having to mourn the loss of the kid you wanted, so you could say hello to the kid you have. Like for instance, say you're a, a macho man and you have a son. And you dreamt all along of him being a big sports guy like you, and he's going to be on the teams and everything. But he turns out that he wants to be a ballet dancer, like in Billy Elliot, and he's a little bit effeminate or whatever. You've got to mourn the loss of what you want and say hello to that kid and love him for who he is and have him be the best ballet dancer he can. Part of being a really good parent is you've got to reflect who I am, where am I coming from, how am I wired, what's my personality, and how does that mesh with my kid, and then really try to, Accept the kid for who he is and accept the fact that some of the things that your kid does isn't comfortable with you, isn't in sync with who you are with respect to your personality. 
you know, I have one kid. She's like me. She's got like a tape A personality. And my wife says to me often, how can you take that? Or why Why doesn't that bother you? I said, eh, I'm used to it. That's, it's, it's not that big a deal, you know. But for my wife, some of the same behaviors really bother her, but she's more laid back. Now, if we had a second kid, I'm sure the second kid would have had my wife's wiring, and I would have had to really be careful as a parent, really be careful not to push this kid into social situations and to make her do stuff that's more of a type A personality. And so you really, really do have to be very self-reflective when you're a parent. And really Mm -hmm. kind of, as we talk about, try to figure out what behavior is normal, what is more personality, you know, and then try to be in sync with your kid, you know, and really accept your kids for who they are. You know, like a kid who's really active and touching things to someone who has a who's more reserved and laid back or by the book. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It really, it, it's a tremendously important subject to really accept the kids for who you are. That's what strength-based practice is all about. Strength-based practice says every kid is fantastic. Every kid has great p- potential, but they're not going to meet that potential if people don't accept them for who they are. If they don't light that candle in every kid. You know, if exactly. they, you know, and so part of that strength-based stuff is about accepting your kid for who they are from a personality standpoint, and letting them be all they can be, and not holding them back because of that. Yeah. Now let's talk some. You you referred to this at the beginning, and you certainly focus on it in the book. No such thing as a bad kid, uh, and that is. Uh, one of the best things we can do with children who have experienced trauma, with any kid, quite frankly, but but today we're talking about kids who have experienced trauma, is work on their self-esteem. So can you talk some about that and give us specific ideas of what we can do as parents to help a child who comes to us with a really poor self-esteem? Uh, it's a great topic because really at the heart of strength-based practice is focusing on kids' strengths. You know, there's a great book out there called Helping Traumatized Kids Learn. And it says it categorically, and it says when a traumatized kid feels really good about him or herself in one area, it generalizes into all other areas. Um, this guy, Robert Brooks, he wrote a great book called The Self-Esteem Teacher. He wrote the foreword for my new book, and he coined this term, Islands of Competence, that a kid really needs something that they're good at. And when they have that, it, it, it flows into all the parts of their life. Now, in my new book, I, I kind of identify three areas that you build self-esteem, uh, change a kid's self-worth. One, create opportunities for success. Uh, I, I've been telling people for a million years now, from the moment a tough kid wakes up in the morning to the moment he goes to bed, they should have multiple opportunities for success. Um, and then really trumpet those successes. So, for instance, I walk around with dice. I'll say to a kid, how many times can you roll the dice without getting doubles? So he rolls five minutes and he rolls 12 in a row. You are now the champion of the school. No kid is, or you're the, you now have the house record. Kid feels good about it. Kid feels good about it. You know, uh, and, and now all of a sudden maybe he's more likely to do his chore or something like that. So oftentimes we're creating things for kids to be successful. A job that they can do. Uh, something, a game that they can all win. Uh, so you always want to be creating things uh, that, give kids success opportunities. Every parent should say to herself, does my kid have multiple chances for success every day? One area is creating things like the dice roll, games, the dominoes. How many times can you roll the dominoes, you know, and, and, connect, and now they have the house record, you know, uh, doing a chore outside, helping you, something. You're creating something that you know the kid has a chance to be successful. I coined the term a universal opportunity for success. You want to create success opportunities. Then you want to modify things, modify uh, 
games and things like that. Uh, I play a lot of card games and one-on-one with kids, and you know, uh, uh, I'll modify them so they can all win. Or I might I might play bingo with kids and say, okay, whoever gets up and down wins, and the kid on his left also wins. You know, I uh, or we play softball with kids. No striking out at spring training. So you want to make sure that you modify the rule in a basketball game. Uh, no shooting until the ball has been passed three times. So, uh, and also what adoptive parents can do is if you've got young kids, play a lot of games with them and lose on purpose. Uh, but be a really good actor uh, and then get really mad about that. People say, well, geez, uh, you know, you shouldn't lose on purpose to a kid. Kids need to learn how to lose. I said, no, they have PhDs in losing a lot of these kids with trauma histories. They need more wins. You know, when I play with young kids in my consultation jobs, I often play Uno with a young kid, and I'll tell the kid, you know, I've never lost a game of Uno. I'm an Uno champion. I write books on Uno. You want to play? And then, you know, I, I might win the first game. Then I'll let the kid beat me three in a row. But what the kid doesn't know is I'm using two decks, and I'm constantly straightening out the decks, and I'm putting wild cards on top. So the kid always beats me. Then I get really mad. Don't you tell your teacher you beat me. Don't you tell anybody. Don't tell, you, don't tell mom you beat me. Kid can't wait to go tell someone. That's instant self-esteem boost. And so, like, again, some people will say, oh, but, man, they got to learn how to lose. No, they have PhDs in losing. Seabiscuit is one of the greatest horses of all time. Um, when it was bought the second time, it had never won a race. The great trainer, Smith, said, you know, he doesn't even know what it's like to win. So what did he do? He gets all these other horses and jockeys, and he has race after race, simulated race, and he tells the other jockey, stay ahead of Seabiscuit till the very end, then let him win. So Seabiscuit wins like eight or nine races in a row that were all staged. Then the Smith says, well, you know what? He's in pretty good shape. Let's see if he likes winning on a real race. And as Paul Harvey, the old radio guy, would say, now you know the rest of the story. Seabiscuit was pretty much undefeated. So I could give you thousands of stories of kids that we set them up to win. We let them win on purpose over and over again. But you have to be a good actor. If they see that you're losing, uh, that's not going to help. But, again, that's another... Example of they need a success, uh, and then also look for success opportunities. Look for any kind of sport or hobby. Uh, I've signed tons of adoptive kids and foster kids into Taekwondo, karate, things like that, uh, because anybody could be successful at that. Bowling, you know, bowling leagues now they have bumper things, you know, so you can't throw the ball in the gutter anymore. You know, I with every kid I work with, we find some kind of hobby, some kind of strength, some kind of activity that I know they could be successful on. And so it's really a very interesting process, you know. So we're talking about losing on purpose to kids, but being a good actor. We're talking about creating opportunities like the dice roll, the domino roll, other things that we know they can be successful. We're talking about signing them up for stuff um, that – they, we know they can be successful. And then trumpeting these successes. I tell every adoptive and foster parent, the second a kid walks into your life, start a memory book. And anytime they do anything good, they, they do the dice roll, 12 in a roll, put that in the memory book. They, they get a good bowling score, put that in the book. They go canoeing, put that in the book. But some of these kids, they look back in life, they don't have anything that they feel good about. You know? And then also tap on existing strengths. You know, As I mentioned, Robert Brooks, one of the foremost experts on enhancing self-esteem in at-risk kids. He tells this wonderful story about a, a young girl who goes into therapy with him, and uh, she comes with his mother, and she's very depressed. She has a growth hormone deficiency. She has to take shots every day, multiple shots, and she's very depressed. And 
Dr. Brooks looks at her and says, uh, what are you good at, dear? What are you good at? She says, I'm good at nothing, Dr. Brooks. I'm good at nothing. And she puts her head down. He feels like crying. She can't even talk. So he continues to interview the mother for another minute or two. Then all of a sudden, her head pops up, the little girl. She says, I know something I'm good at, Dr. Brooks. He goes, what, dear? He says, I'm really good at taking shots. Well, to make a long story short, Brooks has her write a book uh, on how to take shots. They publish it. They put it in the school library. And she comes right out of her funk. So every kid I work with, I've got to find out what they're good at. You know, is there a hobby? Is there something they already have? I ha- I've had middle school kids teach me PowerPoint or something, whether I knew it or not. That was with, And then I keep telling them how much they've helped me, how much they helped me. So there's really, like I said, a multi-pronged process here for enhancing self-esteem. Creating opportunities. Like I said, I have principals all over the world walking around with dice. Kids don't act up. Hey, how many times can you roll the dice? The record's 13. Kid feels great about himself. So there are many things like that, uh, modifying rules and modifying games so every kid could be successful, signing them up for things that you know that they could be successful, tapping on existing strengths. And here's another thing, you know, this is a little bit controversial. Uh, I often say to people, if you're playing with a troubled kid and they start to cheat, you're playing a card game, Uno, anything, would you pick up on it? And, and most people say, yeah, they shouldn't cheat. I said, you know, I'm going to give you a different perspective. I said, when you play a game with a kid, it's really play therapy. What is play therapy all about? Young kids can't verbalize what's going on in their life, so they go see a play therapist, and if it's a kid who you suspect has been abused, if they start having two figures hump each other, uh, it tells you he probably saw something pretty bad in his house. So a little kid will show you through their play what's in their life, what they've seen, what's bothering them. So I say when an adult plays a game with a kid, particularly a kid who suffered trauma, that's like play therapy, and they're showing you their life. It's unfolding right in front of you. So when a kid, particularly a kid who suffered trauma, starts to cheat with me, and many of them do, my response 99 out of 100 times is, wow, this is really hard. I thought you go, then I go, then you go, then I go, but it seems like you go four, I go one. It's really hard when you think one thing's going to happen, but something else happens. What did I just do? I played out the kid's life. And when I say that to kids, they get orgasmic. Because what they don't even realize is they showed me their life, and I'm now validating it. And they love playing games with me. They love cheating because they're basically saying, this is my life. I got cheated, and I love reliving it with you. And now I might let a kid cheat with me for three or four months. And then as the kid starts doing better, as we work on skills, building self-esteem, strategies, changing a kid's mindset, maybe after three or four months I will start to win a little bit. Um, and in fact, I had one girl, oppositional defiant, trauma history. She cheated for five months with me. We'd play fish every week. I'd say, do you have any four? She'd go, no, fish. Do you have a four? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, I do. She cheated for like four or five months. And then right before we finished, I said, you know, I've got to tell you something. I'm really proud of, of how you've done this year. Boy, have you come a long way. Everybody's talking about you. Uh, but I've got to tell you one thing. Uh, we're going to be finishing up in a few weeks. We played fish all year long, and I know you bent the rules a little bit. Uh, I'll ask you for four. You'll say no, then you'll ask me for and, and I want you to know something. That's perfectly okay. I don't want you to ever look back and think there was something wrong about that. I'm here to help you feel good about yourself, give you some new strategies, get you back on track, and you've done that. You've done super. So I don't want you to ever look back at your time with me and feel bad about that. She just gave me a blank stare. Next session, she couldn't wait to see me. Uh, I go, what? She says, come on. And she rushes me to the little room we use where we worked every week. And she says, come on, deal the cards, deal the cards. I said, okay, okay. And I, I think you know what happened next. You know, We played fish, and she played by the rules. 
It was her way of saying, thanks, Mr. A. Thank you. You know, you, you did what you did to help me get to where I am, and I don't need to be, I don't need to cheat anymore. And to me, I put that in the book. To me, that epitomizes what the work with a challenging kid is all about. It's a process. You know, it's a process to get them to the point where they're feeling good about themselves, where they don't need to do that anymore. But that, every time she won, she felt good about herself. So just another little tidbit to this whole self-esteem building thing, because it's a fascinating uh, yeah. topic. It's, uh, and it's really where we turn, turn these kids around through these success opportunities. Thank you so much, Charlie Appelstein, for being with us today to talk about uh, parenting children who have experienced trauma. We, I really appreciate your time. Oh, it's my Let pleasure. Me. It's uh, such an important topic, and like I said, these adoptive and foster parents are my heroes. I wish we had more <laughs> people like the folks in your audience doing what they're doing. Great. If you have enjoyed the show, do us a favor. Please give us a ranking on podcast, uh, a ranking for the podcast on iTunes. Uh, it's how iTunes uh, has uh, included, ranked us as the number one uh, show in this topic area, and it's how we'd like to keep that uh, that ranking. And uh, it's through your comments and our star rankings, either one, that we are able to do this. Um, keep in mind that uh, the information that was presented in this interview is general advice to understand how it applies to your specific situation. Work with your adoption professionals. And good news, the new book, or it's a revised edition of an existing book, No Such Thing as a Bad Kid by Charlie Appelstein, will be available on Amazon or his website, which I'm going to give you in just a moment, in probably about 10 days. Uh, give it two weeks just for the, the heck of it, uh, you know, how publishing goes. But it, it will be available. Uh, it is a great book. Uh, and what I particularly like is it's uh, it's a practical book. It's not all theory, although it does include, of course, the theory. But it's uh, it's practical as well, and I I really appreciate that. Uh, of course, it will be available on Amazon, but it will also be available on Charlie's website, which is charlieA.com. C H A R L I E A dot com, standing for his name, Charlie Appelstein. Thanks for being with us today. And I will see you next week. Right now at the Home Depot, you'll save up to 35% off appliance special buys, like a GE Appliance's top load washer and dryer pair with deep clean and deep rinse options, a reliable heavy-duty agitator, and four precise water levels, just $478 each. Wash, dry, save, repeat. Today is the day for doing with spring Black Friday savings now at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. U.S. only while supplies last. Yesterday, our extra store for details vowed through April 17th. Your hands were made for greatness. Mighty hands for painting, paneling, and clicking the submit order button on homedepot.com to get that duvet. And these Egyptian cotton towels delivered right to your door. Do more with decor at the Home Depot. Save up to 30% on select bedding and bath. Now at homedepot.com. More saving, more kinds of doing. Ballot on select items online only. Free delivery on select items $45 or more. Enter promo code BEDBATH15 at purchase for an extra 15% off. Visit homedepot.com for more information.